You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to crossroadslive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. Good morning, Crossroads family. So great to be here. Um, We're reading Romans 12, 1 and 2, so you can follow along in your Bibles or just Go ahead and listen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You may be seated. Paul, in in talking to us in this moment, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship. It's It's a word that we often speak of when we gather in this place, and we often attach to it that it's it's musical in form only, but worship entails something far far greater. Even within this passage, when he's speaking of spiritual worship, within the context of this verse, the word that is used there means to render service, to dedicate one's life to someone or something, in this case, God. And so this morning, we're going to explore what does it mean to follow in the way of Jesus and worship within all of life, everywhere and everything. But before we jump into that, I just want to take a moment and just pause and pray and ask the Lord just to do what he wants to do in this time together. Father, we come before you and we bring our worship to you. You alone who is worthy. God, I would ask that in this time, uh, your word would come alive to us. Lord, that your spirit would uh, move and guide our, our thoughts, direct our attention to you. Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you cause us to, to repent where we need to repent? But Lord, I I pray that as we look this morning at what it means to worship you, that we would come alive again to the one who is worthy to be worshipped. That we would be overwhelmed by your magnitude, by your grace, by your goodness, by your beauty, by all of who you are. Would you awaken us once again? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks back, as we've been working our way through various practices and disciplines of what does it mean to follow in the way of Jesus, we looked at this idea of what does it mean to be steeped in Scripture. And one of the examples that we used is when Jesus was out in the wilderness and Satan came and tempted him. And there was one moment in particular where he said, all of this, he takes Jesus up to a high place. He says, all of this I will give to you if you just bow down and worship me. 
Now, the word worship here in this context is a different Greek word altogether. It means to kind of lie down before someone, to show reverence, to kind of show your allegiance to someone. And so the question that the enemy, that Satan was giving to Jesus was, listen, if you just bow down to me, if you turn your affections away from God and you look towards me, I'll, I'll give you everything that you want. Just abandon the Father and worship me. And at the heart of this proposition, at the heart of this question that was coming before Jesus was, who are you going to worship? Who are you going to live your life for? Who is going to be at the center of your affections? Who are you going to worship? A question that we are still asked this day and every day. Because the truth is, we all worship something. Whether we know it or not, we are natural worshipers. We all worship something. And the object of our worship is what matters. See, today there are so many products and people and systems that are competing for our attention all the time. They're competing for our affections, our allegiance, our worship. Some of the times we see it, it's blatant. Some of the times we don't even realize that it's just kind of naturally chipping away at us. Our English word, worship, it, it derives from the original word, which was worth-ship, which is essentially ascribing worth to someone or something, saying, you are worthy of my attention. You are worth my attention in this moment. You are worth my devotion. Now, when we look around the world, we see that there's liturgies and there's practices everywhere that are trying to pull us into the devotion and the worship of someone or something. We often speak of worship as though it's something that only takes place within church or it's a certain category of music. It's worship music. But God has designed us, he's wired us, he's made us to be capable of worshiping everywhere and in everything. And the danger for us is that sometimes our worship is, is misguided. And it begins to shape who we are. Again, this can happen in subtle ways or it can happen in very overt ways. Summer's upon us. And, and let me just give you an example of some ways that our, our attention can be drawn in, that we can meditate and think on the wrong things. Every summer, there are uh, thousands, probably millions of people that take this annual pilgrimage where they go to this mystical, this magical place. And as you get there, you get to the front and there's gates that welcome you and you have to pay an exorbitant amount of temple tax in order to get inside those gates. And as you pay that temple tax, you walk in and you're greeted by various priests and priestesses of characters that you know well, that you've watched over and over again. You walk down this main street where there's kind of this strange bazaar of things that you can buy all sorts of wonderful food items. You can purchase various idols that are just kind of laced all throughout. You can even buy a giant pickle if you want to or a giant turkey leg is there as well. 
And as you walk through this place, you start to discover that it seems that the God of this wonderful land is a small, amicable little mouse because he's plastered everywhere and his picture and his statue is at the very center of it all. But actually, that's not what people have come there to worship. No, because this place is bigger than that mouse. They've come to this place to worship happiness. See, this is the magical kingdom which promises to be the happiest place on earth where dreams really do come true, right? The fireworks are timed just so. If you go at wintertime, it even begins to snow and you feel your eyes watering and you're like, why am I so moved by this? Because you're invited to take part in such rituals there as standing in very long lines, right? Watching other people's kids get to the breaking point and losing their minds. And if you're lucky enough, right, you get to watch your own kids get to that breaking point. And it's just a fantastic character-building experience. You can now experience new and mythical places, galaxies far, far away where you can feel the force awakening within you. And when the time comes to leave, because it does close, you feel this impending sadness and you're already feeling this longing to come back. You're planning the next pilgrimage. And as you're leaving, you've got the plans already set in place so that you can think throughout the year upon this time where you will once again experience such happiness. Now, maybe you're not a Disneyland person. That's not your thing. So you would rather go to a different temple. Right? You show up at a different temple where you can walk through the gates and you can feel a certain anticipation as participants prepare for battle. Banners hang of past conquests and you come dressed in your tribal colors. You gather in an arena and you begin chanting and cheering for your kings or for your warriors, whoever they may be. And the most mild-mannered people come alive in their worship, yelling and screaming and chanting and taunting the lesser gods of places of Memphis and things of such. And when your tribe wins, you feel a certain exaltation, a camaraderie with those around you, but when they lose, you feel a certain wrath and despair. You rise and fall with the gods that you have come to worship. Now, I could go on and and grab hold of all sorts of liturgies of just going to the mall and experiencing all the messages that just one more thing is going to satisfy your life, so continue to pay everywhere you go. Or or even the allure and the pool and power of, of politics, that we can get lost in our worship there, that we can forget that when we pledge our allegiance, we actually say one nation under God, but sometimes we make it uh, one God under a nation, and now we've reversed the way in which this is to operate. We can get stuck in the liturgy and the practice and the allure of money as the ultimate source and affection of our worship, and that can drive us in all things. See, the question is not, uh, are you going to worship? The question is, who are you going to worship? What are you going to worship? Because we all worship something. But if we're to follow in the way of Jesus, that means that we are patterning ourselves after our teacher, our rabbi, our savior, our redeemer, and we are going to love as he loved, to live as he lived, and we're going to worship as he worshiped. So what, is, what does this look like? 
Because I'll tell you, with a topic like this, it took a lot for me this week to kind of grab all the different streams that I wanted to go down and not turn this alone into a nine-week series on worship because there's a lot that we could unpack. And so what I want to just do simply this morning as best I can is just look at three guidelines for biblical worship. Three guidelines for biblical worship. What does it mean for us to be worshipers, to follow in the way of Jesus, worshiping the one true God? And so the the three things we'll look at, biblical worship is, it's first and foremost, it's biblically formed. It's God-centered and it's gospel-shaped. Biblically formed, God-centered, and gospel-shaped. Now, as we go through these, we're going to start to understand why we started with Romans 12.1, that we want to see what does it mean to live and present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. That in everything and everywhere, we are to be worshipers. And so this idea of biblically formed worship Donald Whitney, in his uh, great book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, it's a a fantastic resource. It actually walks through a lot of the things that we've been talking about and some extra different different disciplines and different ways to participate from from prayer to fasting uh, to stewardship, all sorts of things. It's a great resource. I'd recommend it to you. But in his book, he points out three truths of, of, of biblically formed worship. And the place that he begins is with Jesus' words. He says, we worship in spirit and in truth. See, Jesus was having a conversation with this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman who, uh, by all accounts, worshipped on the wrong hill. She wasn't a true Israelite. And yet Jesus is here having this conversation and they're kind of unfolding the dialogue as it's going along. They begin to talk around the different places where people worship and Jesus starts to hone in on something so important that's going to radically change everything. That worship is not about a place any longer now that he has come. In John 4, 23 and 24, it says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Again, what Jesus is getting after in this moment is that we can worship that worship, ascribing our worship to someone, to God, in this case, can take place everywhere and in everything. It's not limited to a particular place or a particular building. It doesn't just happen within these four walls or within the walls of church. No, it can happen wherever you find yourself. And the beauty of this is that all who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, all who have called upon him as the way, the truth, and the life, and recognized what he has done on our behalf, we now have the spirit within us. The spirit of truth now resides within us. The comforter, the advocate, the helper is with us. We looked at this week one as we talked around walking in step with the spirit. And so you are now uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So wherever you go is sacred ground. Wherever you are is sacred ground because the Spirit of God resides in you. And so we worship in spirit. 
We worship alongside the guiding of the Spirit, but we also, in this case, this word here, Spirit, is used within kind of our, our, our entire being with a sincerity of heart that we worship. Or as Paul said, that we present ourselves as living sacrifices as our spiritual worship. How many of you have ever gone to see an orchestra play? Just by show of hands. I know it's probably somewhat, okay, that's more than I was expecting. Well done, you guys. So cultured. Look at you. Look at you. I love when an orchestra begins. Before anything's happened yet, they all tune up. Right? A440, in some cases A442, depending on the orchestra and what they're going after. But they all tune up and they all start playing one singular note. And the purpose of this is to make sure that when they come together, that they're all able to play the notes that are on the page in, in tune with one another. And here Jesus is saying that we as worshipers, true worshipers of God, should come and worship in spirit and in truth, that with the entirety of our being, we should come before God. And what I love is that we have the power of the spirit within us that helps us to tune our hearts to God, to his frequency, to his cadence, to his everything, so that when we step into this place, we are ready to worship. When we walk out of this place, he is tuning our lives to live a life of worship to him. And so just like the orchestra tunes up, we tune ourselves to the spirit who is working within us and convicting us so that if there's things that we need to repent of, if there's things that we're carrying around that are, are, are baggage that we've taken back hold of, that Jesus is like, I've freed you of that. Why are you going back to that? The Spirit is convicting us, saying, let go of that. Don't you realize who you are now in light of what God has done for you? And so we align our hearts that we can worship with sincerity. This is how David in Psalm 51 was able to say, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What David's getting after here is when we mess up, but we can repent and return to God and the Spirit will convict us of this truth, aligning our hearts to him so that we can come with full sincerity, the entirety of our being before him. And so we worship in spirit and we worship in truth. Jesus declared to us what truth is. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the truth, and so we worship in the truth of Christ, and we worship within the truth of Scripture. This is why it's so important for us to be steeped in Scripture. Our, our worship is shaped by Scripture, which brings us to the second guideline. If we're to be uh, biblically formed in our worship, worshiping within spirit and truth, then we worship God as he is revealed in the Bible, not as we might want him to be. Okay? We worship God as he is revealed in the Bible, not as we might want him to be. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, wrong ideas about God are not only the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, they are themselves idolatrous. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they were true. So we need to have our minds rightly shaped by truth of who God is. This is why Voltaire one time said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Because we make God in our image. It's, it's more convenient. And then he really, you know, our preferences become God's preferences. 
our way of thinking becomes his way of thinking. That's not how this works. We come under the truth, and we allow that to shape us. What both these men were saying was our worship is to be based on the truth of Scripture, not just our ideas, not just our preferences, our wants. When we encounter the God of Scriptures, we encounter him as he is, not as we make him to be. He is the almighty creator, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who breathed life into creation, gave us breath in our lungs. He is just, he is true, he is righteous, and he is worthy of our worship. And we need to allow scripture to be what informs our view of him. If our ideas come in conflict with the truth of scripture, we need to allow the truth of scripture to win out in that moment to shape our view of who God is. And so we have these ideas of we worship in spirit and truth. We worship God as he is revealed in the Bible. And we worship God in ways he says we should worship him. Now, what do I mean by this? Because we see various acts throughout Scripture of how we are to worship him. And we oftentimes, we limit that to just singing. And singing is a huge part of worshiping God. We see that throughout the Psalms. We see that throughout the Scriptures. We also see dancing is a part of worshiping God, which we could probably use a little more of in here. I'm just going to say it, okay? I'd be okay with that. If you got up and you were feeling it, let's, let's go. I've been to some churches in Africa that I'm like, this is church, my friends. When we've got almost like a conga line going around the whole church, I'm like, this, this is okay. We are biblically worshiping right now. But it's not just musically based. It's coming before him in the word, and, and it's coming before him in awe and wonder, See, worship sometimes is just when you're sitting alone reading scripture and you just, oh, something new comes out at you and the spirit illumines a new truth and you just stop and you pause and you just take it in. Right? Worship can happen as you're, you're driving along and you just suddenly, the, the clouds in the sky just catch your attention as they're just changing colors because the radiance of the sun and it points you to the one who made all of this and you're like, this is beauty beyond comprehension. And this is just a taste of who you are. See, we, we worship in, in various ways. But we worship as he says we should worship. In the spirit, in community. When we're alone, when we gather through our gifts in our work. Yes, in our work. That is a form of worship. God designed us from the very beginning. Before the fall, we were working alongside the creator. He gave us creative ability to work and to tend soil and to, to go after our vocation. That's a form of worship in our life even still. It's all part of our living sacrifice, our spiritual worship to God. We recently went through Colossians in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, everywhere and in everything, there can be an act of worship towards God. If he is the, the center of your affections, if he is your aim, then all that we do can be an act of worship to him. And when we look at the object of our worship, our worship is to be God-centered. So if our worship is to be biblically formed, then we also want it to be God-centered. That seems so obvious, 
But it's actually really hard to fight for at times. Because we can make worship about a number of other things, can't we? Worship can suddenly become about our song choices and our preferences. And if it's too loud or if there's drums or there's not enough hymns and there's not enough, that's not God-centered. Are we looking towards him? The first of the Ten Commandments that God gave to his people. Exodus 23 says, you shall have no other gods before me. He's making it real clear. I'm, I'm number one. That's how you, you are going to best function in the way that I designed you and created you, that you keep me first above all things. That we keep our, our worship God-centered. There's a, a lot of examples that I could give around this idea, uh, but I, I want to jump to Psalm 96. It's going to be on the screen as well. If you're reading along in our reading plan, we read this entire psalm uh, this week uh, together. Uh, but I, I just want to read this in a little audience participation, if you can help me, where, where it's, it's green, it's underlined. When I get to that point, if you could just say that out loud with me, just those underlined points. I just I want to make sure we're not missing this, okay? Sing to the Lord. a new song. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim salvation day after day. Declare glory among the nations. Marvelous deeds among all peoples. I know I skipped one. I... I <laughs> I, I realized it as I was reading it, and yep, yep. But you know what? Second service, we won't skip it. Sing. Second service is going to be a, a word longer. Well, actually, this interaction is now making it longer, so we'll avoid all this together. So it'll it'll be a wash. It'll be it'll be great. But who is the aim of this passage? The Lord. The Lord. Just repetitive over and over again. Who are we to pay attention to? Who are we to ascribe worth to? Who are we to sing to? It is to the Lord. It's to the Lord. And I know that seems so simplistic. Like, yeah, we get it. But do we get it? Because we know it, but we don't often experience it. How often are we distracted in our thoughts, even in our, our reading or in the midst of we're worshiping here in this room? I will tell you, as, as one who led worship for many years, I've had to like work through this internal critic in my head that analyzes every worship leader I ever experienced. Like, oh, I liked his transition there. That was good. Oh, this guy really knows what he's doing. You know, instead of just being present to the moment and being like, forget all that and just step into the presence of God, lift my eyes to him and the words that I'm singing, make sure that I'm singing to him. That I'm not worried about, uh, hey, is my harmony sounding pretty good right now? Is the person next to me going to be like, hey, you have a pretty good voice, right? No, it's not about that. Or for some of you know, some of us are like, well, is this a person listening to me right now? Are they going to know I'm completely tone deaf? Like, is this an issue? Like, like, I have to tell you, some of my favorite worship experiences is standing next to people who are tone deaf. I know that sounds funny, but when they're singing at the top of their lungs and it is off key, I know they're not singing for my sake. I do. I do. They're not trying to impress anyone in that moment. And I love it because I'm like, you are singing to the Lord. And man, that is humbling. 
Man, I don't care what it looks like to anyone around. That's like when David was dancing before the Lord and his wife's like, what are you doing? He's like, you want to see me be more indignified than this? Like, this is for the Lord. So our worship is to be God-centered. When Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? How did he respond? He said, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, with the entirety of your being. Love the Lord first and foremost. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. That everything in our life is to be aimed at him first and foremost. Keeping that order is so hard. And we we don't have to see, we did not get very far as humanity in the pages of scripture before that order got messed up. And we continue to feel the, the weight of that and the rift of that and the fight of that. But as we begin to understand truly who God is, that should inform our presence and being present before him. Because it's important for us to understand who God is. Michael Horton says this, and I love this. He says, vagueness, vagueness about the object of our praise inevitably leads to making our own praise the object Praise, therefore, becomes an end in itself, and we are caught up in our own worship experience rather than in God, whose character and acts are the only proper focus. If we're unsure of why we're gathering and who we're singing to, then it's going to become about that experience. But if we understand when we come together as a community of believers that our attention is to be focused first and foremost on Him, there's no vagueness about that. I think sometimes I wrestle with this myself, the casualness with which we will approach God. And then, then you read some passages that remind you of what a, an appropriate response to God should look like when he shows up, when he's moving around us. And so I want to I take you just to a couple of passages. Okay, You can turn there if you want to with me. Uh, I just want to look at Isaiah 6. Uh, And then we're going to jump into Revelation as well. But in Isaiah 6, verse 1, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah, the prophet, given this vision of the throne room of God, he's seeing the seraphim, these crazy creatures flying around with six wings, and he's hearing them say, holy, 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 three times holy, so separate and other is God, that they have to say, holy, holy, holy. And what's his response? I'm dead. I'm in the presence of God. Woe is me. I should die. 
Now, why is that? Why is he saying, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm of a people of unclean lips. Because when he experiences the holiness of God, the complete otherness of God, the complete goodness of God, the perfection of God, he comes face to face with his own imperfection, his own sin, and he feels the shame and the sorrow and the guilt, and I cannot stand before you. I am dead. See, to Isaiah, what he understood is that no one can stand in the presence of God and live because all have sinned. We all bear this mark, every single one of us. And God, who is holy, 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 who is perfect and righteous and true, stands so other than who we are. And so Isaiah knows this. He's embarrassed. He's ashamed. He's afraid. Because how can he possibly stand before God? Now what's fascinating to me is that when you look throughout history, at moments where great revival has broken out, you know where revival begins? We're about to find out. Answer that call. Let's hope in. You know where revival begins? It begins with an acknowledgement of the holy. That God is so other. That, that great movements of revival, they begin with repentance. A sorrow over our own sin. An acknowledgement that we are sinful. That we have wrong in our hearts, that we have this mountain of moral debt that we cannot overpay on our own, that we carry with us, that we, we feel that. And that's, that's where God intercedes in those moments and people are, are pressed down acknowledging the holiness, the otherness, the goodness of God. And what I fear is that far too often we, we just overlook our sin. Or we tame our sin, or we, we just kind of say, oh, it's, not, it's not that big a deal. See, when we say it's not that big a deal, we've forgotten who we're worshiping. The God who is holy, 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 in whom there is no wrong, there is no shade, there is no shadow, there is only light that shines forth brightly, exposing all the darkness that's within us. And I know there's a temptation to be like, well, yeah, but that's, that's, that's Old Testament God. He was much scarier then. He's, he's not as scary now that Jesus has come. Well, let me just jump really quick to a passage in, in Revelation, which is just anytime you say Revelation, I know some of you immediately get nervous, like, I don't want to go here. But I, I want to go to this passage because it, it always grabs my attention. Because remember, the, the one who is receiving this vision, this revelation from God, is the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, the one who walked alongside Jesus, the one who reclined on Jesus, the one who made it to the tomb before Peter, the one who loved Jesus. Loved Jesus. He was witness to his death and to his resurrection. It's the same John that's now writing this vision that he's writing down as the final book that we have in our scripture. 
And beginning in John, uh, Revelation 1, verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And John, the beloved apostle, when he sees Jesus, says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. The image before me was so holy, so other, so terrifying, so magnificent, so radiant, so glorious, I had no other response but to fall down as though dead. Now, I'm not advocating that every time we, we come and we gather for worship that you walk through the doors and you fall down dead. Okay? But what I want us to keep in mind is this tension that we so often feel of the familiarity of God, but also the awesomeness of who he is. That we can approach the almighty God. And that when our lives are not in tune with him, we should feel the rift of that. And seek to remedy that by repenting and turning back towards him. See, John's reaction to Jesus in this moment was he fell down dead because he was standing before the risen king who had come to save. And he was so awesome, so magnificent. And he was confronted with who he is. Now, what I love is that immediately following it says, but he laid his right hand on me. Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. For I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. But notice he doesn't say, hey, that's, that's ridiculous. You shouldn't respond to me like that. He's like, no, no, no. He reassures us. I understand. But fear not. Remember who I am. You should be in awe and wonder of who I am. But, but, but also he comes and he comforts us and he stands alongside us. Later in Revelation, we read of this beautiful throne room scene where creatures of all sorts, nations, and people are gathered and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And all of this is centered on the one who is on the throne, that we are to center our worship on the one who is on the throne, that God is to always be our aim of worship. We look to him, not to others. So our worship is always God-centered. It's God-centered. So if we have a biblically formed worship, it's God-centered. The third thing of our worship is this, it's gospel-shaped 
And so for those of you who are sitting there like uh, uh, the enormity of my sin is upon me and I feel that weight all the time and now you're telling me I should stand in awe of this holy God and I should feel that and drop down dead. Yes, you should, but I also have a solution for you. See, this is the beauty of gospel-shaped worship. Because when we gather, as we've already done here today, we sing songs of salvation. We worship because we remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. The good news of Jesus should shape the way we worship, not just in these walls, but in all of life, because Jesus has made it possible for us to worship. We come before God not on our own merit or on our own righteousness, but we come based on the righteousness of Jesus. And I think oftentimes we forget just how good the good news is. I was reading a story of, of two friends that were just sharing impactful moments in their life. And one of them said, I, just, I got this random text from my friend. And it simply said this. I want to encourage you with the gospel. That God made you. The all-powerful and all-knowing and all-sovereign God created you in his image. Yet by Adam's sin, you inherited sin, and therefore, it, you were once an enemy of God. But God, being rich in mercy and love, sent his one and only son, Jesus, to bear the punishment of your sin. Thereby, you have been set free, being reconciled to God by Jesus. You are no longer an enemy of God, but now a child of God. So repent, believe in Jesus, that by faith and God's grace alone, you are saved. Now that, that little text message, that could be the source of any sermon. But what I loved about it was these two friends have been following Jesus for a long time. But, but what we need is a reminder of just how good that gospel is. And that it's not just for the person next to us, but it's for, it's for us. That he's saved and he has rescued us that that sinfulness that we feel in the presence of God and we feel like it's insurmountable, it is. We can't do it on our own, but Jesus has come that we might have life in him and he has overcome that we can have relationship with God, that we can stand in the presence of God based on the righteousness of Jesus. And this is good news that we don't just feel here, we carry it with us everywhere we go. And so at times, I think we just need to stop in the midst of our day when we're feeling overwhelmed to just remind ourselves that you were made by God, the all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-sovereign God. He created you in his image. Yet by Adam's sin, you inherited sin, and therefore uh, you were once an enemy of God. But God, being rich in mercy and love, he sent his only son to bear the punishment of your sin. Thereby you have been set free, being reconciled to God by Jesus. You are no longer an enemy of God, but you are now a child of God. So repent. Turn from your wrong actions. Turn from the sin in your life. Repent and believe in Jesus that by faith, God's grace alone, you are saved. You are rescued. You are redeemed. See, this is what it means to come before God in awe and wonder and fear and reverence and worship. We recognize that we have life in him, not in our own merits, but in his merit. Our sins are forgiven and we are free by the mysterious grace of God revealed in Jesus. This is good 
news. This is great news. This is the best news. This is the truth, truth that you can cling to. This radically transforms every single one of us who step into the truth that Jesus is alive and that he has come to save and to rescue and to redeem you and all who call upon his name will have life and forgiveness and freedom both here and now and forevermore. See, this is why we gather so that we can remember this truth because we are quick to forget in the liturgies of our day and the practices of other things that want us to worship them come at us all week long and we need to stop. We need to refresh ourselves on the goodness of the gospel and allow it to shape our worship and to respond to his goodness so that we can ascribe worth to the one who is worthy. In Hebrews 10, 19, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He's faithful. So as we look to follow in the way of Jesus, living a life that loves God with the entirety of our being, where do we start with this? We go back to Romans 12 where it says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Again, the, the gospel's there. By the mercy of God, we can come before and present ourselves, our bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In all of life, everywhere and everything, we are to worship him. Why? Because we are a people of the second chance. We, we knew we were dead. That we had no hope without Jesus, but now we've experienced life in him, meaning we have been given life where we deserve death. So how are we planning to spend this one and only life that we have been given now that we have been redeemed in him? We have the privilege to live as living sacrifices to God. This is our spiritual worship to render our lives in service to him. And we don't do this just when we sing in church, but we do this when we go to work, when we love those around us well, when we stand for truth, when we help the poor, when we come alongside the downtrodden. We worship everywhere and in everything. All of life is worship, and all is worship to him. Harold Best said it well. He says, we do not go to church to worship, but as continuing worshipers, we gather ourselves together to continue our worship, but now in the company of brothers and sisters. See, I love this framework because what this assumes is that before you even step foot onto this campus or walk through these doors, that you have already been worshiping throughout your week. That you have already been living in such a way that this just continues the conversation that you've been having with God. That you step in with your heart tuned to Him and and ready to go. Now I know that's not the case every week. 
And that's where discipline comes in. The, the practice of gathering together, of even when you don't feel like singing, coming and standing with your brothers and sisters and singing these truths to God. Gathering together, even when we don't feel like it. Even when we just are feeling the weight of all that's going wrong in our life, like I just don't want to be confronted by my brothers and sisters on that. I don't, I don't want to go and be with anybody. No, we come and we gather together and we experience the grace of God in these moments as we worship together. So how do we begin to practice this? Well, everywhere and in everything. That's our practice. Go and do. But how do we do that? Well, I think we do that beginning each day, recognizing everything you do as an act of worship. Every choice you are making is an act of, of worship. Am I choosing my own convenience in this moment over what I feel God is calling me to step into? Am I choosing my own desires and wants over spending time aligning my heart to, to him and allowing him to speak to me? Everywhere and everything means that all of life is worship. And so the, the verse that I, I want to encourage you to memorize this week, I actually see this as our, our daily prayer too. And it's simply the one we've been looking at, Romans 1, I appeal, 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I'd encourage you, take this verse and use this as your prayer prompt each day as you begin your day and say, Lord, would you help me to live today as a living sacrifice to you? Would you help my life to be in worship to you? Would you help me to step forward in all that I do? Well, you've got a day full of meetings today, and you hate those days full of meetings. Okay, Lord, would you help, would you help me in this moment to see this as an act of worship to you? Does that mean it's all going to be like suddenly the day was amazing? No, but I think you'll be surprised at the way God shows up in those moments and speaks to you. When you come with your hands open, okay, this day isn't about what I want to get done, Lord. It's what, what do you want to get done in and through me? This is my spiritual act of worship to you. And pay attention to what he says and step in and lean into that. See, practicing worship is, is practicing tuning our hearts to God. That your life may sing of his goodness. Remember who he is. Remember what he has done. And as you awaken from the slumber of death you so deserved, live a life in gratitude to him. In gratitude, gratefulness, following his way, ascribing worth to the one who is worthy, and worshiping him everywhere and in everything. You pray with me. Father, you alone are worthy of our worship. God, your goodness is overwhelming. And so, Lord, where we need to just sit in stillness and awe of who you are, would we? Where we need to be confronted by our own sinfulness, would we? Would we allow you to examine our hearts? But, God, would we also remember that you have provided the remedy in Christ? 
that you have provided the truth in Christ, that in you we have life where once we deserve death, and all who call upon your name are yours. So, Lord, would we answer that question of who are we going to worship? Would we just give a resounding, you, we're going to worship you in the entirety of who we are? Would that be our aim? Would that be what we strive for, how we shape and pattern our life, how we create the rhythms and space of our life to keep our hearts singularly focused on you? That in our parenting, we would be worshiping you. That in our work, we would be worshiping you. In our families, we would be worshiping you. In our driving, we would be worshiping you. In our walking, we would be worshiping you. In our social media comments, we would be worshiping you. Father, that we would be keeping you as the aim of all things. And Lord, when we fail, would we be quick to turn back to you? And Lord, for any in this room who have yet to step into to worshiping you wholly and freely, calling upon the name of Jesus to receive life, Lord, I pray they would do that. Here and now, turn your heart, your affection towards Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. And I call upon you, I believe in you that you died on my behalf, that you rose again in life, and that in you I am forgiven. Lord, would that good news never lose its wonder? Would who you are never lose our awe? For God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we leave from here today, that's, that's our prayer, that Christ would be magnified in and through us, everywhere and in everything that we would ascribe worth to our risen King. If you need prayer, we'll be down front. We'd love to pray alongside you. But as we go out today, let me just one more time read this. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Would our lives be a living act of worship to him and all that we do as a people who have experienced his grace and know his peace. Go with him. God bless you. We'll see you next week.